Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Now, views and opinions of Nation Talk are not necessarily views of talk show, generating productions, Sotohead.com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk on Talk Show and Jam Radio.
You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. This is your Sunday evening form, Nation Talk. Talk of the Live Public Affairs Program that deals with issues concerning you from the studios of Savannah, Georgia. Call 
problem that could be greatly reduced just by having a place to exercise. Right now, people are working hard to put parks and playgrounds where children will use them. Log on to earthshare.org today and find out how you can help. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38 years old, and I work at a graphic design company, which is funny because I couldn't even draw a stick figure when I was a kid. But I met someone who told me, you know what? You can do anything if you really want to. And if the teenage me were here, she'd tell you, I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for big brothers, big sisters. Most kids from my neighborhood don't get into art. They get into trouble. But I was lucky because my big sister showed me early on that I didn't have to be like most people. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this eight-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a graphic designer. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping big brothers, big sisters help a child, and that can last a lifetime. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Close your eyes in Chicago, and you can hear the sound of zebra braying in Africa. Look hard out your window in D.C., and you can see the snow-covered peaks of the Andes. The world is that small. We are that connected. Please visit earthshare.org and learn how the world's leading environmental groups are working together. Earthshare, one environment, one simple way to care for it all. A public service message from Earthshare and the Ad Council. The views of Peace of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of TalkShoe, Generator Production, SonyHead.com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk.
welcome to another Sunday evening of Nation Talk here on Talk and Jam Radio. Tonight we're going to take into some topics like the war in Aleppo, the Obama, President Obama's news conference, Russia hacking, and a hell and farewell. That's all tonight, right here on your Sunday evening form. Nation Talk, 1724 444 Call your number, 555-199 pound. We do a hell of a farewell to Alan Thick and Zaza Kabor. Uh, in case you didn't know, Miss Kabor died this afternoon at her home in uh, in California. She was 99 years old. We're going to do a hell of a farewell to her. All right. Let's get this night started with the news conference. I don't know if you all seen it the other day. President Obama's last news conference. Last news conference. And... Here it is. Good afternoon. Uh, this is the most wonderful press conference of the year. I've got a list of who's been naughty and nice to call on. Uh, but let me first make a couple of quick points, and then I'll take your questions. Uh, typically, I use this year-end press conference to review how far we've come over the course of the year. Uh, today, Understandably, I'm going to talk a little bit about how far we've come over the past eight years. As I was preparing to take office, the unemployment rate was on its way to 10%. Today it's at 4.6%, the lowest in nearly a decade. We've seen the longest streak of job growth on record, and wages have grown faster over the past few years than at any time in the past 40. When I came into office, 44 million people were uninsured. Today, we've covered more than 20 million of them. For the first time in our history, more than 90% of Americans are insured. In fact, yesterday was the biggest day ever for healthcare.gov. More than 670,000 Americans signed up to get covered, and more are signing up by the day. We've cut our dependence on foreign oil by more than half, doubled production of renewable energy, enacted the most sweeping reform since FDR to protect consumers and prevent a crisis on Wall Street from punishing Main Street ever again. None of these actions stifled growth, as critics predicted. Instead, the stock market has nearly tripled. Since I signed Obamacare into law, our businesses have added more than 15 million new jobs. The economy is undoubtedly more durable than it was in the days when we relied on oil from unstable nations, and banks took risky bets with your money. Add it all up, 
and last year the poverty rate fell at the fastest rate in almost 50 years, while the median household income grew at the fastest rate on record. In fact, income gains were actually larger for households at the bottom and the middle than for those at the top. And we've done all this while cutting our deficits by nearly two-thirds and protecting vital investments that grow the middle class. Foreign policy, when I came into office, we were in the midst of two wars. Now nearly 180,000 troops are down to 15,000. Bin Laden, rather than being at large, has been taken off the battlefield along with thousands of other terrorists. Over the past eight years, no foreign terrorist organization has successfully executed an attack on our homeland that was directed from overseas. Through diplomacy, we've ensured that Iran cannot obtain a nuclear weapon without going to war with Iran. We opened up a new chapter with the people of Cuba and we brought nearly 200 nations together around a climate agreement that could very well save this planet for our kids. And almost every country on Earth sees America as stronger and more respected today than they did eight years ago. In other words, by so many measures, our country is stronger and more prosperous than it was when we started. It's a situation that I'm proud to leave for my successor. And it's thanks to the American people for the hard work that you've put in, the sacrifices you've made for your families and your communities, the businesses that you started or invested in, the way you looked out for one another. And I could not be prouder to be your president. Of course, to top this progress doesn't mean that we're not mindful of how much more there is to do. In this season in particular, uh, we're reminded that there are people who are still hungry, people who are still homeless people who still have trouble paying the bills or finding work after being laid off. There are communities that are still mourning those who have been stolen from us by senseless gun violence and parents who still are wondering how to protect their kids. After I leave office, I intend to continue to work with organizations and citizens doing good across the country on these and other pressing issues to build on the progress that we've made. Around the world as well, there are hotspots where disputes have been intractable, conflicts have flared up, and people, innocent people, are suffering as a result. And nowhere is this more terribly true than in the city of Aleppo. For years, we've worked to stop the civil war in Syria and alleviate human suffering. It has been one of the hardest issues that I've faced as president. The world as we speak, is united in horror at the savage assault by the Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies on the city of Aleppo. We have seen a deliberate strategy of surrounding, besieging, and starving innocent civilians. We've seen relentless targeting of humanitarian workers and medical personnel, entire neighborhoods reduced to rubble and dust. There are continuing reports of civilians being executed, these are all horrific violations of international law. Responsibility for this brutality lies in one place alone, with the Assad regime and its allies, Russia and Iran. And this blood and these atrocities are on their hands. We all know what needs to happen. There needs to be an impartial international 
observer force in Aleppo that can help coordinate an orderly evacuation through safe corridors. There has to be full access for humanitarian aid, even as the United States continues to be the world's largest donor of humanitarian aid to the Syrian people. And beyond that, there needs to be a broader ceasefire that can serve as the basis for a political rather than a military solution. That's what the United States is going to continue to push for, both with our partners and through multilateral institutions like the UN. And regretfully, but unsurprisingly, Russia has repeatedly blocked the Security Council from taking action on these issues, so we're going to keep pressing the okay, Security Google. Council to help Turn improve the, the delivery of humanitarian aid to those who are in such a and to ensure accountability, okay, including continuing to monitor any potential use of chemical weapons in Syria. And we're going to work in the UN General Assembly as well, both on accountability and to advance a political settlement, because it should be clear that although you may achieve tactical victories, over the long term, the Assad regime cannot slaughter its way to legitimacy. That's why we'll continue to press for a transition to a more representative government, and that's why the world must not avert our eyes to the terrible events that are unfolding. The Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies are trying to obfuscate the truth. The world should not be fooled, and the world will not forget. So, uh, even in a season where the incredible blessings that we know as Americans uh, are all around us, uh, even as we enjoy family and friends uh, and are reminded of how lucky we are, uh, we should also be reminded that to be an American involves bearing burdens and meeting obligations to others. American values and American ideals are what will lead the way to a safer and more prosperous 2017, both here and abroad. And by the way, if you embody those values and ideals like our brave men and women in uniform and their families. So I just want to close by wishing all of them a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. With that, I will take some questions, and I'm going to start with Josh Letterman of AP. Thank you, Mr. President. There's a perception that you're letting President Putin get away with interfering in the U.S. election, and that a response that nobody knows about uh, or a look back review just don't cut it. Are you prepared to call out President Putin by name for ordering this hacking? And do you agree with what Hillary Clinton now says that the hacking was actually partially responsible for her loss? And is your administration's open quarreling with Trump and his team on this issue tarnishing the smooth transition of power that you have promised? Uh, well, first of all, with respect to the transition, uh, I think they would be the first to acknowledge that we have done everything we can to make sure that they are successful, as I promised, and that will continue. And it's just been a few days since I last talked to the president-elect about a whole range of transition issues. Uh, that cooperation is going to continue. Um, there hasn't been a lot of squabbling. What we've simply said is the facts, uh, which are that uh, based on uniform intelligence assessments, the Russians were responsible for hacking the DNC and that 
as a consequence, uh, it is important for us to review all elements of that and make sure that we are preventing that kind of interference uh, through cyber attacks in the future. Uh, that should be a bipartisan issue. That shouldn't be a partisan issue. And uh, my hope is that the president-elect is going to similarly be concerned with making sure that we don't have potential foreign influence in our election process. I don't think any American wants that. Uh, and uh, that shouldn't be a source of an argument. I think that part of the challenge is that it gets caught up in the carryover from election season. And I think it is very important for us to distinguish between the politics of the election and the need for us as a country, both from a national security perspective, but also uh, in terms of the integrity of our election system and our democracy, uh, to make sure that we don't create a political football here. Now, with respect to how this thing unfolded last year, let's just go through the facts pretty quickly. At the beginning of the summer, we're alerted to the possibility that the DNC has been hacked. And I immediately order law enforcement, as well as our intelligence teams, to find out everything about it, investigate it thoroughly, to brief the potential victims of this hacking, to brief on a bipartisan basis the leaders uh, of both the House and the Senate and the relevant intelligence committees. And once we had clarity and certainty around what in fact had happened, we publicly announced that in fact Russia had hacked into the DNC. And at that time, we did not uh, attribute motives or uh, any interpretations of why they had done so. Uh, we didn't discuss what the effects of it might be. We simply let people know, the public know, just as we had let members of Congress know, that this had happened. And as a consequence, all of you wrote a lot of stories about both what had happened and then you interpreted why that might have happened and what effect it was going to have on the election outcomes. We did not. And the reason we did not was because in this hyperpartisan atmosphere, at a time when my primary concern was making sure that the integrity of the election, election process was not in any way damaged. At a time when anything that was said by me or anybody in the White House would immediately be seen through a partisan lens, uh, I wanted to make sure that everybody understood we were playing this thing straight, that we weren't trying to advantage one side or another, but what we were trying to do is let people know that this had taken place. And so if you started seeing effects on the election, if you were trying to measure uh, why this was happening and uh, how you should consume the information that was being leaked, that you might want to take this into account. Uh, and that's exactly how we should have handled it. 
Imagine if we'd done the opposite. It would have become immediately just one more political scrum. And part of the goal here was to make sure that we did not do the work of the leakers for them by raising more and more questions about the integrity of the election right before the election was taking place, at a time, by the way, when the president-elect himself was raising questions about the integrity of the election. And finally, I think it's worth pointing out, that the information was already out. It was in the hands of WikiLeaks. So that was going to come out no matter what. Uh, what I was concerned about in particular was making sure that that wasn't compounded by potential hacking that could hamper vote counting, affect the actual election process itself. And so in early September, when I saw President Putin in China, I felt that the most effective way to ensure that that didn't happen was to talk to him directly and tell him to cut it out, and there were going to be some serious consequences if he didn't. Uh, and in fact, we did not see further tampering of the election process, but the leaks through WikiLeaks had already occurred. So uh, when I look back in terms of how we handled it, I think we handled it the way it should have been handled. We allowed law enforcement and the intelligence community to do its job without political influence. We briefed all relevant parties involved in terms of what was taking place. When we had a consensus around what had happened, we announced it, not through the White House, not through me, but rather through the intelligence uh, communities that had actually carried out these investigations. And then we allowed you and the American public to make an assessment as to how to weigh that going into the election. And the truth is, is that there was nobody here who uh, didn't have some sense of what kind of effect it might have. I, I, I'm finding it a little curious that everybody's suddenly acting surprised that this looked like it was disadvantaging Hillary Clinton because you guys wrote about it every day, <laughs> every single leak, about every little juicy tidbit of political gossip, including John Podesta's risotto recipe. This was an obsession that dominated the news coverage. So I do think it's worth us reflecting how it is that a presidential election of such importance, of such moment, with so many big issues at stake and such a contrast between the candidates, came to be dominated a bunch of these leaks. What is it about our political system that made us vulnerable to uh, these kinds of potential manipulations, which, as I've said publicly before, were not particularly sophisticated. This was not some elaborate, uh, complicated espionage scheme. They, they hacked into some Democratic Party emails that contained pretty routine stuff, some of it embarrassing or uncomfortable because I suspect that if any of us got our emails hacked, there might be some things that we wouldn't want suddenly appearing on the front page of a newspaper or a telecast, even if 
there wasn't anything particularly illegal or controversial about it. And it just took off. And that concerns me, and it should concern all of us. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that everybody had the information. It was out there, and we handled it the way we should have. Now, moving forward, I think there are a couple issues that this raises. Number one is just the constant challenge that we are going to have with cybersecurity throughout our economy and throughout our society. We are a digitalized culture, and there is hacking going on every single day. There's not a company, there's not a major organization, there's not a financial institution, there's not a branch of our government where somebody's not going to be fishing for something or trying to penetrate or put in a virus or malware. And this is why for the last eight years I've been obsessed with how do we continually upgrade our cybersecurity systems. Uh, and this particular concern around Russian hacking is part of a broader set of concerns about how do we deal with uh, Previously on Scorpion, I am running for the 16th District Alderman of West Altadena in the local upcoming election. So I'm your campaign manager now. What? Why? Because I care about you, kid. You look beautiful. Oh, thank you. I am excited to meet your parents. You should have taken my mom dancing when you had the chance. Could have been partners forever. Paige, hear me out. How does Miss Franklin know your name? The last name is not Franklin, it's Deneen. My mother is a congressman. A first-degree grifter. Would you like to meet your grandson? I'd like that very much. It's a true pleasure. I want what's best for my daughter. And from what I can tell, that's you. I'm going to help you get her back. Those videos of people leaning so hard into the wind that they're nearly horizontal, that was me today. I'm so glad to be out of Chicago and back in L.A. I missed you so much. I can't wait to get home. Cyber oh, you want to get crazy tonight? Order pizza, do nothing. In ways that can affect our infrastructure. <laughs> Cyber attacks directed at our companies to steal secrets and proprietary technology. Me either. 
And I had to have the same conversation with President Xi. And what we've seen is some evidence that they have reduced, but not eliminated, these activities because they can use cutouts. One of the problems with the Internet cyber issues is there's a lot of work coming on late. By the time you catch up to attributing what happened to the government to be difficult, not always provable court, even though our intelligence communities can make an assessment. What we've also tried to do is to start creating some international norms about this to prevent some sort of cyber arms race because we obviously have offensive capabilities as well as defensive capabilities. And uh, my approach is not a situation in which everybody's worse off because uh, are constantly attacking each other back and forth, but putting some guardrails uh, around the behavior of nation states, including our adversaries, just so that they understand uh, that whatever they do to us, we can potentially do to them. We do have some special Hello. challenges because oftentimes our economy is more oh digitalized. Partly because we're a wealthier nation uh, and we're more wired than some of these other countries. And we have a more open society uh, and engage in less control and censorship over what happens over the Internet, uh, which is also part of what makes us special. Last point. And the reason I'm going on here is because I know that you guys have a lot of questions about this, and I haven't addressed uh, all of you directly about it. Uh, with respect to I smell a rat. All right. My oh, principal rat. goal leading up to the election was making sure that the election itself went off without a hitch, hmm. that it was not tarnished, and that it did not feed any sense in the public that uh, somehow tampering had taken place with the actual process of voting. We accomplished that. That does not mean that we are not going to respond. It simply meant that we had a set of priorities leading up to the election that were of the utmost importance. Our goal continues to be to send a clear message to Russia or others not to do this to us because we can do stuff to you. Uh, but it is also important for us to do that in a thoughtful, methodical way. Some of it we do publicly. Some of it uh, we will do in a way that they know, but not everybody will. <coughs> and I know that there have been folks out there who suggest somehow that Cold War teams. We went out there the action isn't and made big announcements and pumped oh, our chefs uh, about a bunch of stuff come back. somehow that was experiment I'm doing. Anyway, essentially hey, spooked the Russians. Like but keep in mind that we already have Revenge of the enormous said, numbers of sanctions against Russia. The real genius, which he said, the relationship between us and Russia is deteriorating. Which happened to be Sam's favorite. I'm expanding my films repertoire. I know poppycock when I hear it. You're trying to win page. Appropriate response. I'm certain uh, she's involved for them for behavior like this in the future, <laughs> but does not Yay. create problems for us. Isn't that great? Uh, is something it's that's worth the girl in the end? taking the oh, time to think through and figure out. 
Thank God for that movie. It was practically your babysitter every day. At a point in time where we've taken certain actions, we can divulge publicly. We will. There are times where the message will go, will be directly received by the Russians and not publicized. And I should point out, by the way, part of why uh, the Russians have been effective on this is because they don't go around announcing what they're doing. It's not like Putin's going around the world publicly saying, look what we did. Wasn't that clever. He denies it. So... Uh, is uh, going to be uh, effective. Uh, the, the thought process uh, in Russia uh, very well. Okay. Did Clinton lose because of the hacking? I'm, but all the political pundits in this town uh, have a long discussion yeah, great. about. Better than a motel. Cheaper too, and we're it was a clear fascinating that, election, um, so I, you know, I'm sure temporary. there's going to be a lot of books Absolutely. written about One week. Uh, I've said what I think yeah, is important to Thanks, thanks, Mom. Other than uh, try to part uh, every aspect of uh, And I've, I've said before, I couldn't be prouder of Secretary Clinton for outstanding service. I think she's worked tirelessly on behalf of the American people, and I don't think she was treated fairly during the election. Uh, I think the coverage of her and the issues uh, trouble. Um, but having said uh, what I've been most focused on, appropriate for the fact that I'm not going to be a politician in about, was it 32 days? 31? 34? Uh, what I've said is, is is that I can maybe give some counsel and advice to the Democratic Party, and I think that the, the thing we have to spend the most time on, because it's the, the thing we have the most control over, is how do we make sure that we are showing up in places where I think Democratic policies are needed, where they are helping, where they are making a difference, but where people feel as if they're not being hurt and where Democrats are characterized as coastal, liberal, latte-sipping, uh, you know, politically correct, uh, out-of-touch folks, uh, we have to be in those communities. And I've seen that when we are in those communities, it makes a difference. That's how I became president. I became U.S. Senator not just because... I had a strong base in Chicago, but because I was driving around downstate Illinois and going to fish fries and sitting in DFW halls and talking to farmers, and I didn't win every one of their votes, but they got a sense of what I was talking about, what I cared about, that I was for working people, that I was for the middle class, that the reason I was interested in strengthening unions and raising the minimum wage and rebuilding our infrastructure and making sure that parents had decent child care and family leave was because my own family's history wasn't that different from theirs, even if I looked a little bit different. Same thing in Iowa. 
And so the question is, how do we rebuild that party as a whole uh, so that there's not a county in any state, I don't care how red, where we don't have a presence and we're not making the argument, because I think we have the better argument. Um, but that requires a lot of work. Um, so it's been something that I've been able to do successfully in my own campaigns. It is not something I've been able to uh, transfer to candidates in midterms and sort of build a sustaining organization around. That's something that I, uh, I would have liked to have done more of, but it's kind of hard to do when you're also dealing with a whole bunch of issues here in the White House. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean, though, that it can't be done. And uh, I think there are going to be a lot of talented folks out there, a lot of progressives who share my values who are going to be leading the charge uh, in the years to come. Michelle Kaczynski, CNN. Thank you. This, this week we heard Hillary Clinton talk about how she thinks uh, that the FBI director's most recent announcement made a difference in the outcome of the election. We also just heard um, in an op-ed her campaign chairman talk about something being deeply broken within the FBI. He talked about thinking that the um, investigation early on was lackadaisical in his words. So what do you think about those comments? Do you think there's any truth to them? Um, do you think there's a danger there that they're calling into question the integrity of institutions in a similar way that Donald Trump's team has done? And the second part to that is that um, Donald Trump's team repeatedly uh, is giving, giving the indication that the investigation of the Russian hack as well as the retaliation might not be such a priority once he's in office. So what do you think the risk is there, and are you going to talk to him directly about some of those comments he makes? When we return, the president will give us <clears throat> the president will give us answer. Back to this. You're listening to Nation Talk. They'll talk to you and Jam Radio. Wow, yeah, since the storm, it's been crazy busy for us. We got all kinds of office desks coming in. Uh, here's, a, here's a fancy one right here. It's missing a leg, but that's all right. Whatever. Washers and dryers from a laundromat. Oh, wow, check this out. Another deep fryer. And I'm not sure what this doohickey is. Yeah, most businesses weren't ready for a storm like that, you know. But our work's really piling up here at Roberts & Son Salvage. What will become of your business after a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now, before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council.
You're listening to Nation Talk here on TalkShoe and Jam Radio. season to governance season uh, is not always smooth, you know, bumpy. There's still feelings that are raw out there. Uh, There are people who uh, are still thinking about how things unfolded, and I get all that. Um, But when Donald Trump takes the oath of office and is sworn as the 45th president of the United States, then he's got a different set of responsibilities and considerations. Uh, and uh, I've said this before, I think there is a sobering process uh, when you uh, walk into the Oval Office. Um, and uh, you know, I haven't shared previously uh, private conversations I've had with the pres- President-elect. I will say that they have been cordial and uh, in some cases have involved me making some pretty specific suggestions uh, about how to ensure that regardless of our obvious deep disagreements about policy, uh, maybe I can transmit some thoughts about maintaining uh, the effectiveness, integrity, cohesion of the office, our various democratic institutions. Uh, and uh, and he uh, has listened. I can't say that he will end up implementing, but uh, the conversations themselves uh, have uh, been cordial as opposed to defensive in any way. Um, and and I will always make myself available to him, just as previous presidents have made themselves available to me uh, as issues come up. Uh, with respect to the FBI, I will tell you that I've, I've had a chance to know a lot of FBI agents. Uh, I know Director Comey. Um, they take their job seriously. Uh, they work really hard. They help keep us safe and save a lot of lives. And it is always a challenge for law enforcement when there's an intersection between the work that they are doing and the political system. That's uh, you know, one of the difficulties of democracy generally. We have a system where we want our law enforcement investigators and our prosecutors to be free from politics, to be independent, to play it straight. But sometimes that involves investigations that touch on politics and particularly in this hyper-partisan environment that we've been in, Everything is suspect, everything you do one way or the other. Um, One thing that I have done is to be pretty scrupulous about not wading into investigation decisions or prosecution decisions or decisions not to prosecute uh, 
I have tried to be really strict in my own behavior about uh, preserving the independence of law enforcement, uh, free from my own judgments and political assessments in some cases. Uh, and I don't know why I would stop now. Mike Dorning of Bloomberg. You Thank go. you, Mr. President. Um, I want to let the, um, your views that what happens there is the responsibility of the Russian government, the Iranian government, the Assad regime, and pretty well there. But do you, as President of the United States, leader of the free world, feel any personal moral responsibility now at the end of your presidency for the carnage that we're all watching in Aleppo, which I'm sure disturbs you, which you said disturbs you? Secondly, also on Aleppo, you've again made clear your practical disagreements with the idea of safety, and President-elect Trump as throughout his campaign, and he said again last night that he wants to create safe zones in Syria. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like in this transition you need to help him towards implementing that, or is that not something that you should be doing? Uh, Mike, I always feel responsible. I felt responsible when kids were being shot by snipers. I felt responsible when millions of people had been displaced. I feel responsible for murder and slaughter that's taken place in South Sudan that's not being reported on, partly because there's not as much social media being generated from there. There are places around the world where horrible things are happening and because of my office, because I'm President of the United States, I feel responsible. I ask myself every single day, is there something I could do that would save lives and make a difference and spare some child who doesn't deserve to suffer? So that's a starting point. There's not a moment during the course of this presidency where I haven't felt some responsibility. That's true, by the way, for our own country. When I came into office and people were losing their jobs and losing their homes and losing their pensions, I felt responsible. And I would go home at night and I would ask myself, was there something better that I could do or smarter that I could be that would make a difference in their lives, that would relieve their suffering? And relieve their hardship. So with respect to Syria, what I have consistently done is taken the best course that I can to try to end the civil war while having also to take into account the long-term national security interests of the United States. And throughout this process, based on hours of meetings. He tallied it up days or weeks of meetings where we went through every option in painful detail with maps, and we had our military, and we had our 
aid agencies, and we had our diplomatic teams. And sometimes we'd bring in outsiders who were critics of us. Whenever we went through it, the challenge was that short of putting large numbers of U.S. troops on the ground, uninvited, without any international law mandate, without sufficient support from Congress, at a time when we still had troops in Afghanistan and we still had troops in Iraq and we had just gone through over a decade of war and spent trillions of dollars and when the opposition was not cohesive enough to necessarily govern a country and you had a military superpower in Russia prepared to do whatever it took to keep its client state involved. And you had a regional military power in Iran that saw their own vital strategic interests uh, at stake and were willing to send in as many of their people or proxies to support This is Nation Talk on Talk to You and Jam Radio. Good evening. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, it would start pretty normal, like this. But, but then, then right, right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Here, she'd be forced to work two jobs struggling to support herself and her daughter. She'd feel stuck, stuck, stuck. But then she'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes. Study every night and feel unstuck. Because she'd finally hear someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. The nation talk are not necessarily views of Talk Shoe, Generally Protected, com, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. take over Syria, we were going to have problems. And that everything else 
was tempting because we wanted to do something and it sounded like the right thing to do, but it was going to be impossible to do this on the cheap. And in that circumstance, I have to make a decision as President of the United States as to what is best. I'm sorry, what's going on? Somebody's not feeling good? All right. While we uh, while we have we got uh, we can get we can get our doctors back there to help out. Somebody want to uh, go to my doctor's office and just have them. All right. Where was I? So uh, we we couldn't do it on the cheap. Now uh, it may be. Can, can, some, can somebody help out, please, uh, and get uh, Dr. Jackson in here? Somebody grabbing our doctor? Of course. In the meantime, just give her a little room. The doctor will be here in a second. Strangest part of the news conference when uh, when the reporters uh, wasn't feeling well, still don't know what happened. Um, whether she's okay. You guys know where the doctor's office is? Cause, uh, just go through the palm doors. It's right right next to the map room. There he is. All right, there's Doc Jackson. He's all right. Okay. Doctors, doctors in the house. So, um, and, and, and I don't mean that. Uh, I mean, I, I mean that with all sincerity. I, I understand the impulse to want to do something. But ultimately, what I've had to do is to think about what can we sustain, what is realistic. And my first priority has to be what's the right thing to do for America. Uh, and it has been our view that the best thing to do has been to provide some support to the moderate opposition so that they could sustain themselves and that you wouldn't see anti Assad regime sentiments just pouring into al-Nusra and al-Qaeda or ISIL, that we engaged our international partners in order to uh, put pressure on 
all the parties involved, uh, and to try to resolve this uh, through diplomatic and uh, political means. I cannot claim that we've been successful. Uh, and so that's something that, as is true with a lot of issues and problems around the world, um, I have to go to bed with every night. But I continue to believe that it was the right approach given what realistically we could get done. Absent a decision, as I said, to go in a much more uh, significant way. Uh, and that, I think, would not have been sustainable or good for the American people because we had a whole host of other obligations that we also had to meet, wars we had already started and that were not yet finished. Um, with respect to the issue of safe zones, it is a continued problem, a continued challenge with safe zones is if you're setting up those zones on Syrian territory, then that requires some force that is willing to maintain that territory in the absence of consent from the Syrian government and now the Russians or the Iranians. Uh, so it may be that with Aleppo's uh, tragic situation unfolding, that in the short term, if we can get more of the tens of thousands who are still trapped there out, that so long as the world's eyes are on them and they are feeling pressure, the regime and Russia concludes that they are willing to find some arrangement, perhaps in coordination with Turkey, whereby those people can be safe. Even that will probably be temporary, but at least uh, it solves a short-term issue that's going to arise. Unfortunately, we're not even there yet because right now we have Russians and Assad claiming that basically all the innocent civilians who were trapped in Aleppo are out when international organizations, humanitarian organizations who know better and who are on the ground have said unequivocally that there's still tens of thousands who are trapped and prepared to leave under pretty much any conditions. And so right now our biggest priority is to continue to put pressure wherever we can to try to get them out. Okay. Not, notwithstanding well, Mike, the, I, the I second question, your objections are well aired, but do you keep so, responsibility notwithstanding to move in that direction or help President-elect Trump move in that direction? I, I will help President Trump President-elect Trump, uh, with any advice, counsel, information that we can provide so that he, once he's sworn in, can make a decision. Between now and then, these are decisions that I have to make based on the consultations I have with our military and the people who have been working this every single day. Peter Alexander. Mr. President, thank you very much. Can you, given all the intelligence that we have now heard, assure the public that this was, once and for all, a free and fair election? And specifically on Russia, do you feel any obligation now, as they've been insisting, 
that this isn't the case, to show the proof, as it were. They say, put your money where your mouth is and declassify some of the intelligence, some of the evidence that exists. And more broadly, as it relates to Donald Trump on this very topic, are you concerned about his relationship with Vladimir Putin, especially given some of the recent cabinet picks, including his selection for Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who toasted Putin with champagne over oil deals together? Thank you. Um, I may be getting older because these multi-part questions, I, I, I start losing track. Um, I... I can assure the public that there was not uh, the kind of tampering with the voting process that was a concern uh, and will continue to be a concern uh, going forward, that the votes that were cast were counted. They were counted appropriately. Uh, we have not seen evidence of machines being tampered with. So that assurance I can provide. That doesn't mean that we find every single uh, you know, potential probe of every single uh, uh, voting machine all across the country, but we paid a lot of attention to it. We worked with state officials, et cetera, uh, and we feel confident that uh, that didn't occur and that the votes were cast and they were counted. So that's, so that's on that point. What was the second one? The second uh, one about declassification. Declassification. Uh, look, uh, we will provide evidence that we can safely provide that does not compromise sources and methods. Um, but I'll be honest with you, when you're talking about cybersecurity, a lot of it is classified, and we're not going to provide it because the way we catch folks uh, is by knowing certain things about them that they may not want us to know. And if we're going to monitor this stuff effectively going forward, we don't want them to know that we know. Uh, so this is one of those situations where Unless the American people genuinely think that the professionals in the CIA, the FBI, our entire intelligence infrastructure, many of whom, by the way, served in previous administrations and who are Republicans, uh, are less trustworthy than the Russians, then people should pay attention to what our intelligence agencies say. This is part of what I meant when I, when I said that we've got to think about what's happening to our political culture here. The Russians can't change us or significantly weaken us. They are a smaller country. They are a weaker country. Their economy doesn't produce anything that anybody wants to buy except oil and gas and arms. They don't innovate. But 
they can impact us if we lose track of who we are. They can impact us if we abandon our values. Mr. Putin can weaken us just like he's trying to weaken Europe if we start buying into notions that it's okay to intimidate the press or lock up dissidents or discriminate against people because of their faith or what they look like. And what I worry about more than anything is the degree to which because of the fierceness of the partisan battle you've started to see certain folks in the Republican Party and Republican voters suddenly finding a government and individuals who stand contrary to everything that we stand for as being okay because that's how much we dislike Democrats. I mean, think about it. Some of the people who historically have been very critical of me for engaging with the Russians and having conversations with them also endorsed the president-elect, even as he was saying that we should stop sanctioning Russia and being tough on them and work together with them against our common enemies. It was very complimentary of Mr. Putin personally. You know, that that wasn't news. The president-elect during the campaign said so. And some folks who had made a career out of being anti-Russian didn't say anything about it. And then after the election, suddenly they're asking, oh, why didn't you tell us that uh, maybe the Russians were trying to help our candidate? Come on. There, There was a survey, some of you saw, where now, this is just one poll, but a pretty credible source. 37% of Republican voters approve of Putin. Over a third of Republican voters approve of Vladimir Putin, the former head of the KGB. Ronald Reagan would roll over in his grave. And how did that happen? It happened in part because for too long, everything that happens in this town, everything that's said is seen through the lens of does this help or hurt us relative to Democrats or relative to President Obama. And unless that changes, we're going to continue to be vulnerable to foreign influence because we've lost track of what it is that we're about and what we stand for. With respect to uh, the president-elect's appointments, it is 
his prerogative, as I've always said, uh, for him to appoint who he thinks can best carry out his foreign policy or his domestic policy. Uh, it is up to the Senate to advise and consent. There will be plenty of time for uh, members of the Senate to go through the record of all his appointees and determine whether or not uh, they're appropriate for the job. Martha Rennes. I want to talk about Vladimir Putin again. Just to be clear, do you believe Vladimir Putin himself authorized the hack, and do you believe he authorized that to help Donald Trump? And on the intelligence, one of the things Donald Trump cites is Saddam Hussein and the weapons of mass destruction, and that they were never found. Can you say unequivocally that this was not China, that this was not a 400-pound guy sitting on his bed, as Donald Trump says? And do these types of tweets and kinds of statements from Donald Trump embolden the Russians? Mm. You know, when, when the report comes out before I leave office, uh, that will have drawn together all the threads, uh, and so I don't want to step on their uh, their uh, their work ahead of time. Uh, what I can tell you is that the intelligence that I've seen gives me great confidence in their assessment that the Russians carried out this hack. The hack of the DNC and the hack of John Podesta. Now, the but again, I think this is exactly why I want the report out, so that everybody can review it. Uh, and this has been briefed, and the evidence in closed session has been provided on a bipartisan basis. Not just to me, it's been provided to uh, the leaders of the House and the Senate and the chairman and ranking members of the relevant committees. And I think that what you've already seen is at least some of the folks who've seen the evidence don't dispute, I think, the basic assessment that the Russians carried this out. Well, Martha, I think what I want to make sure of is that um, I give the intelligence community the chance to gather all the information. But I'd, I'd make a larger point, which is not much happens in Russia without Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is a pretty uh, hierarchical operation. Last I checked, there's not a lot of uh, debate and uh, democratic deliberation, uh, particularly when it comes to policies directed at the United States. We have said, and I will confirm, that uh, this happened at the highest levels of the Russian government. And I will let you make that determination as to whether there are high-level Russian officials who go off road and decide to tamper with uh, uh, the U.S. election process without Vladimir Putin knowing about it. Um, so I wouldn't be wrong in saying the president thinks Vladimir Putin authorized the Martha, I'm giving you what I'm, what I'm going to give you. Uh, what was your second question? Do the tweets and do the statements by, by Donald Trump embolden Russia? As I said before, I think that the president-elect you know, is still in 
transition mode from campaign to governance. Uh, I think he hasn't gotten his whole team together yet. Uh, he still has campaign spokespersons sort of filling in and appearing on cable shows. and you know, There's just a whole different attitude and vibe when you're not in power as when you're in power. Uh, so uh, rather than me sort of characterize the appropriateness or inappropriateness of uh, uh, what he's doing at the moment, I think what we have to see is uh, how will the president-elect operate and how will his team operate when they've been fully briefed on all these issues, they have their hands on all the levers of government, and they've got to start making decisions. Uh, one way I do believe that uh, the president-elect can approach this that would uh, be unifying is to say that we welcome a bipartisan, independent uh, process that gives the American people an assurance not only that votes are counted properly, that the elections are fair and free, uh, but that uh, we have learned lessons about how internet propaganda from foreign countries can be released into the political bloodstream and that uh, we've got strategies to deal with it for the future. The more this can be uh, nonpartisan, the better served the American people are going to be, which is why I made the point earlier. And I, I'm going to keep on repeating this point. Our vulnerability to Russia or any other foreign power is directly related to how divided, partisan, dysfunctional our political process is. That's the thing that makes us vulnerable. If fake news that's being released by some foreign government is almost identical to reports that are being issued through partisan news venues, then it's not surprising that that foreign propaganda will have a greater effect. Because it doesn't seem that far-fetched compared to some of the other stuff that folks are hearing from domestic uh, propagandists. To the extent that our political dialogue is such where everything's under suspicion, everybody's corrupt, and everybody is doing things for partisan reasons, and all of our institutions uh, are uh, full of malevolent actors, if, if that's the storyline that's being uh, put out there uh, by whatever party's out of power, uh, then when a foreign government introduces that same argument with facts that are made up, voters uh, who 
been listening to that stuff for years, who've been getting that stuff every day from talk radio or other venues, they're going to believe it. So if we, if we want to really reduce foreign influence on our elections, then we better think about how to make sure that our, our political process, our political dialogue uh, is stronger than it's been. Mark Landler. I wonder whether I could move you from uh, Russia to China for a moment. Absolutely. Um, your uh, successor spoke by phone with the president of Taiwan the other day uh, and declared subsequently that he wasn't sure why the United States needed to be bound by the one China policy. He suggested it could be used as a bargaining ship, perhaps to get better terms on a trade deal or more cooperation on North Korea. There's already evidence um, that tensions between the two sides have increased a bit, and just today the Chinese have uh, evidently seized an underwater drone in the South China Sea. Um, do you agree, as some do, that our China policy could use a fresh set of eyes, and what's the big deal about having a short phone call with the President of Taiwan? Uh, or do you worry that these types of unorthodox approaches are, are setting us on a collision course with perhaps our biggest geopolitical uh, adversary? That's a great question. Uh, I'm somewhere in between. Uh, I think all of our foreign policy should be subject to fresh eyes. Uh, I think one of the – I've said this before. Uh, I am very proud of the work I've done. I think I'm a better president now than when I started. But if you're here for eight years in the bubble, uh, you, you start seeing things a certain way, and you benefit from the democracy benefits. America benefits from uh, some new perspectives. Uh, and I think it should be uh, not just the prerogative, but the obligation of a new president to examine everything that's been done and see what makes sense and what doesn't. That's what I did when I came in. And uh, I'm assuming any new president is going to uh, undertake those same exercises. Uh, and given the importance of the relationship between the United States and China, uh, given how much is at stake in terms of the world economy, national security, our presence in the Asia-Pacific, uh, China's uh, increasing role in international affairs, there's probably no bilateral relationship that carries more significance, and uh, and where there's also uh, the potential, if that relationship breaks down or goes into a full conflict mode, uh, that everybody is worse off. So I, I think it's fine for him to take a look at it. Um, what I've advised the president-elect is that across the board on foreign policy, you want to make sure that you're doing it in a systematic, deliberate, intentional way. And since there's only one president at a time, my advice to him has been that uh, before he starts having a lot of interactions with foreign governments, other than the usual courtesy calls, uh, that he should want to have his full team in place, that he should want his team to be fully briefed on 
what's gone on in the past and where the the potential uh, pitfalls may be, uh, where the opportunities are, uh, what we've learned from eight years of experience. Uh, so that as he's then maybe taking foreign policy in a new direction, he's got all the information uh, to make good decisions. And by the way, that all of government is moving at the same time uh, and singing from the same hymnal. Um, and with respect to China, and let's just take the example of Taiwan, uh, there has been a long-standing agreement, essentially, between China, the United States, and to some degree the Taiwanese, which is to not change the status quo. Taiwan operates uh, differently than mainline, uh, mainland China does. China views Taiwan as part of China, but recognizes that it has to approach Taiwan uh, as uh, an entity that uh, has its own ways of doing things. Uh, the Taiwanese have agreed that as long as they're able to continue to function with uh, some degree of autonomy, that they won't charge forward uh, and declare independence. And that status quo, uh, although not completely satisfactory uh, to any of the parties involved, uh, has kept the peace and allowed the Taiwanese to be a pretty uh, successful and economy and, and uh, a, a people who have a high degree of self-determination. But understand, for China, the issue of Taiwan is uh, as important as anything on their docket. The, the idea of one China is at the heart of their conception as a nation. And so if you are going to upend this understanding, you have to have thought through what the consequences are because the, China are, the Chinese will not treat that uh, the way they'll treat some other issues. They won't even treat it the way they treat issues around the South China Sea where we've had a lot of tensions. Um, this goes to the core of how they see themselves uh, and uh, their reaction on this issue. Uh, could end up being very significant. That doesn't mean that you have to adhere to everything that's been done in the past. It does mean that you've got to think it through and have planned for potential reactions. That
बड़े बम बरसाते हैं और बच्चे खामोश हो जाते हैं जीते जाते हैं मगर बच्चे खामोश हो जाते हैं ये भी एक खामोश बच्चा है सीरिया के एलप्पो का खामोश बच्चा In the impact segment tonight, how should the U.S. respond to the apparent hacking attacks from Russia? As I mentioned earlier, President Obama addressed the issue during an interview with NPR. I think there is no doubt that when any foreign government tries to impact the integrity of our elections, that we need to take action, and we will. 
Joining us now from Washington with Reaction, Michael Rubin, author of Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes, and from Houston, National Security Analyst, Arash Aramesh. Arash, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, later on, or earlier today, actually, President Obama, in his long press conference, said, our message to Russia, not, don't do this to us anymore because we can do stuff to you. That doesn't sound like there's a lot of teeth in that threat, in it threat against retaliating against Russian hacks. You know, President Obama apparently told President Putin of Russia about a month ago that he needs to cut it out, actually about two months ago, right before the election, told the Russian president that you need to cut out all these interferences and meddling into our election. Here's what happened. Wait, 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 Arash, Arash, few... or, or what? And here's the problem. Cut it out two months ago, or we'll do stuff to you today. I don't know. If I'm Putin, I'm going, whoa, okay, I'll stop and... right now. Well, we have, we have plenty of tools in our arsenal that we can hit the Russians back with it. But here's what happened. Here's what happened. There are a few sacred rights as an American, right to free speech, right to free assembly. And one of those very sacred rights is the right to vote and to make sure that that electoral system, that's the sanctity of that electoral system is protected and it's safe. Russian governments and senior intelligence officials in that government, and now we know President Putin himself, because of a personal okay, vendetta against my Hillary point, Clinton, right? I, I, I want to bring Michael in. And then but, they leaked but, it, but, and they Arash, leaked it, Arash, and they leaked it, and but, they get... But, but there's no recourse. They'll keep... Do, I, have a, I have a teenager, and you know what teens respond to? Punishment. They don't respond to idle threats, you know. Uh, stop doing that or else. The, the or else is what really counts. Michael, your thoughts? Well, Obama's got no credibility on the international front. He should start leaking the details of Putin's Swiss bank accounts right away. He's got no credibility on the domestic front, because when the Chinese stole 20 million personnel files from the office of um, from OPM, Obama refused to name the Chinese because he was afraid of it. And he's got no credibility when it comes to security, because he hasn't punished anyone for leaks in this sort of operational security. Okay, Rush, what about this? What about President Obama admitting today that, yeah, he was aware of the, of the Russian hacking, but they haven't done anything, and now, now he's leveling a threat uh, on this day? You know what? Children do respond to uh, threats, but they also respond to rewards. And the best reward the Russian government can get is a Russia-friendly White House. And Donald Trump is going to promise them that. That was the main theme in his campaign. And people, he's been... Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. So, listen, like many of you, uh, I was initially fairly skeptical of the Democrats' claims that it was the Russians who had hacked the U.S. election, thus swinging the 96% certainty the New York Times put forward about a Hillary Clinton victory to a rather resounding and decisive victory uh, of one Donald J. Trump in the Electoral College. I was a little skeptical, you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, the Russian hacking stuff was around before the election, and the uh, U.S. electorate could obviously take that accusation or insinuation into account when casting their votes. Uh, secondly, when it looked like or when everyone believed on the left, and of course some on the right as well, that um, Hillary Clinton was a shoo-in, she was going to win no matter what, then nobody thought that the election was hacked on the left. You know, when they thought their candidate was going to win, it was a completely legit, up and up, on by the boards, by the books, uh, free and clear election whose uh, authenticity and validity should never be questioned except by those who wish to underpin and undermine the entire foundations of a democracy, which, of course, America is not <laughs> republic, Republican, Democrat, democracy. It's a republic. So I was a little skeptical of the idea that Vladimir Putin had uh, 
buried some Bluetooth keyboard in the wild mane of his uh, horse that he thunders across the Russian landscape on a regular basis with, and it somehow used it to remotely get into or do something or whatever. So the basic idea is that, uh, put forward by the Democrats, is that uh, it was the Russian government who hacked the DNC, maybe even got a hold of Podesta's emails and forwarded them on over to WikiLeaks. Now, WikiLeaks denies this and say it was not the Russian government. Of course, they haven't said who it is. Of course, it's supposed to be anonymous, but they said it's not uh, the Russian government, and other people have come forward to um, sort of back up that particular um, fact, at least facts claimed by WikiLeaks. And, uh, you know, a lot of these security agencies uh, don't seem to be exactly rallying behind these anonymous sources of mystery uh, shrouded in gloom and doom that the mainstream media appears to be quoting, that there's all this highly secretive information that uh, they can't reveal their sources, but their sources are willing to break laws in order to pass this confidential information to the media and so on. So it's hard to, it was hard for me to sort of get behind it, but... You know, I try to do my due diligence. I try to be as, as rigorous as possible. So I began to look. And I kind of hate to say it, but lo and behold, um, well, let, let, me just, let me just give you what I've got, and you can make the decision as, as you see fit. So, you know, let me sort of jump up to the top left corner here. Uh, this is uh, all the evidence that points towards a Russia uh, digitally hacking, getting a hold of particular emails, publishing. This is all the evidence that I could get together to, to help support uh, the Democrats and the mainstream media story that Russia hacked the election. Well, I hope that that helps clear things up. I thank you, everyone, so much for your very kind and continued support of this broadcast. Free Domain Radio, you can help us out, of course, support the show. It is the season to be kind uh, at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful day. And um, don't click on the phishing links, please. This is the story of a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dickie Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find which classes he really needed. You missed the lesson on telling dragons from dragonflies. Right. Um, I want to go to college, so I'm taking algebra 2, biology, and a foreign language. Foreign language? You mean so you can talk to unicorns? Well, not exactly. Unless they're French. But Larry had no time for unicorns, or even for Miss Petunia Tutti's time-traveling tutorial, which met every other yesterday at 25 o'clock. Sorry I'm late. My softball game went into overtime. And he knew knowhowtogo.org was way better than hoping for a snockball scholarship. So, while his friends all aced invisibility, when Larry finally got to college, they were nowhere to be seen. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Have you ever dreamed of being a karate master? Uh, yeah! Well, stop dreaming and start chopping with the Karate Glove. Hi, my name's Molly, inventor of the Karate Glove, and I have just one and a half words for you. Hi-ya! The Karate Glove chops through anything. Just put it on and instantly chop through wood. Hi, hi. Concrete, brick walls, trees, small cars. It can even chomp through these eight guitars. 
It chops things. If I can invent a karate glove, just imagine what you can do. Visit inventnow.org to get started on your invention. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. It's high time! Armando Ferreira, technology expert and advisor. I'm here to help make technology and smart devices work for people, not against them. Welcome to the Now Home. The world still reeling after the death of Alan Thicke. E.T. learned it happened while playing ice hockey with his son Carter, and only E.T. is with the man who made the 911 call. Mr. Matthewson, now I understand that you were the one who made the 911 call today. Can you just walk me through what exactly happened, how you got that news, and how you ended up making the call to 911? I was sitting at my desk, and uh, three guys came through the door about 15 minutes after the hockey started and were saying, we got a guy down, please call 911. Call 911, Darren. And that's what we did. And did you know at first that it was Alan Pick? At what point did you realize that it was Alan? No, I had no idea it was Alan. We were told, I was told that it was a guy down, because down out there, everybody's just a, a player, all team members. I actually didn't know it was Alan until the EMTs got here and we sat him up, because he was, he was on his back. But he was breathing and talking. I didn't hear him, but you could see that there was movement, because all the players were around him at that point. And when they sat him up, was he speaking? Was he coherent? What was happening? Yeah, he was very coherent. In fact, he had Carter take a picture of him. He said, hey, kid, take a picture of me. Make sure you get the rink in the background as they were taking him out of here. So, yeah, and, and when he went by us, he, he gave us a thumbs up, like, doing good, guys. I'm good. I think that's part of what's so hard to hear about it is that his son was here with him, and they frequented this rink, right? I mean, you knew him. You were friends with him. Absolutely. Was Alan was a great guy. He always checked in with everybody, and he'd wave, and he was just a, just a super guy, just like anybody. But the family was always here. His uh, brother Todd skated with the same group, and Carter, of course, being here with them, and I felt bad for Carter. I could see he was very shaken up by the whole thing. I don't know. We just saw something came across the news that they think he's passed away. So we were very saddened because we just didn't think that was going to be the case because he didn't leave here like that. Robin Thicke breaks his silence after the passing of his father, Alan. The Blurred Line singer told the L.A. Times his dad was always a gentleman and called him the greatest man I ever met and added, quote, the good thing was that he was beloved and had closure. I'm here outside of Providence St. Joseph Medical Center where E.T. has learned that Alan Thicke died today of a heart attack. He was 69 years old. Shortly after news of the growing pain star's death broke, celebrities flooded social media with their reaction and their sorrow, including Candace Cameron Burr, who had recently worked with Alan on season two of Fuller House. Candace, whose brother is Alan's Growing Pains co-star, Kurt Cameron, of course, took to Instagram writing, I'm sad beyond words that Alan Thicke has passed away. I've known you since I was eight years old and so glad I had the pleasure of working with you again so recently on Fuller House. You were a part of my family and hockey family. You will be greatly missed. 
Another reaction was Bob Saget, also from Fuller House. He said, so sad is the passing of Alan Sick, such a good husband, father, brother, and friend. He will be deeply missed. Paula Patton, the ex-wife of Alan's son, Robin Sick, shared a heartfelt quote from Mother Teresa about how precious life is. Most of the Fuller House cast weighing in quickly on Twitter. Lori Laughlin said, I'm so sad to hear about the passing of Alan Sick. Another TV icon, Larry King, tweeting, so sorry to hear of the passing of Alan Sick, a wonderful talent, a wonderful man. Marley Matlin tweeted, I am saddened at the news of Alan Sick's passing. My daughter and I just saw him. Rest in peace, dear friend and gentleman. And Shaka Khan also shared condolences to the family of Alan Sick. If ever there was a time celebs are thinking about our mortality, 2016 is it. was the famous Hollywood socialite long before Kim Kardashian. Actress Zsa Zsa Gabor has died at the age of 99. She was crowned Miss Hungry at the age of 15. Then Zsa Zsa and her sister Eva became two of the most famous women in show business, living their lives in the public eye. She died today after years of health problems. Variety has confirmed that Zsa Zsa Gabor has died at the age of 99 after suffering a heart attack on Sunday afternoon. Gabor has been in and out of the hospital for health-related issues for the past few years. The actress and socialite had starred in dozens of films and television series throughout the 50s and 60s. Gabor also had a series of alleged affairs with iconic men, including Frank Sinatra and John F. Kennedy. She had been married nine times throughout her life. That's our hail and farewell to both Alan Thick and Jaja Kabor. And let me wrap this up with my my comment of my um, blog. By the way, you can listen to, we can um, check out my blog, Nation Talk, Real, Real Talk, Real, Real Issues on nationtalkradio.wordpress.com. I've just posted one just a few, just, just um, yesterday, just posted it yesterday. And um, you can also find it on my Facebook page. Uh, the name of the article is Dylan Roof, The Face of Evil. Um, here's what I, this is what, these are what I was thinking. It's no doubt in my mind that Dylan Roof knew exactly what he was doing the day he shot and killed nine members of the Mother Emmanuel A.E.M.E. Church. He had motive and means to commit a crime.
crime of murder. The attorneys of Ruth says he's guilty, but with some mental illness that contributes to what he did. Let's be honest. Mental illness doesn't have anything to do with it. This is clearly a crime of, of this is clearly a hate crime written all over it. And there's no doubt he hated African Americans with a passion, killing them. I am surprised he 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 decided to not to kill one in order to in order so she can quote unquote tell the story. Just like just look at this question. If Ruth was an African American and killed an all white church congregation, he would be instantly punished, not even seeing the light of day. But why did justice drag her feet in order to decide if he was guilty or not guilty? Something is just not right, or it is. Or is it the memory of these nine are not important enough? Dylan Roof is not just another face, but a face of evil. A new face with the same issue of race that is being seen in a way that is underhanded and yet slick. A way of truly hidden racism, seen and unseen. It was a coward way out in a way that was dead wrong, to say the least. As for the sole survival of this killing, this will just will for a long time be in her memory for a long time as, as she saw one by one members of her church die in the hands of this, of this killer. Then walking out the door with that gun in his hand and the blood all over him. Now that Dylan Roof was found guilty, we can rest now that at least the killer is off the street. But what about the next time? The next church that may fall victim like these nine at Mother Emmanuel Amy Church. How safe are we really are in our house of worship? Will this change the rules of safety in our churches? Let's just pray that there will not be another Dylan Roof out there or some racist gun, happy person, come in and repeat what has happened. Check out the blog at nationtalkradio.wordpress.com and make your comments. Also, check out check it out on my Facebook page, Kenneth Radio Jenkins at Facebook page, 
Killer Fredzo Jenkins, and you can also check it out on my tweet, Twitter page, my Twitter, Killer R. Jenkins, on Twitter. Well, this is going to do it for yours truly until uh, the next time. You have been listening to Nation Talk. I'd say all of you, thank you for listening to us all throughout the year. Thank you all for calling in, tuning in, and please, by all means, download our programs. None of our programs are erased, excuse me, are erased or taken off after our guys. So by all means, by all means, please um, check out our check out our Check out the uh, program in the archives. Until next time. Night. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Views of Peace of Nation Talk are not necessarily the views of Talk Show, Jam Radio. Productions, Solarhead.com, and the sponsors. This has been Nation Talk. Affairs program aired Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Be sure to join me for another Nation Talk here on TalkShoe and Jam Radio. Yeah.
Sham Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.